0: Hello and welcome to the Christ Fellowship weekly podcast. At Christ Fellowship, our desire is to cultivate a passion for Jesus and His purposes on the earth. To connect with us in community, partner with us through giving, or visit on Sunday morning, please visit ChristFellowship.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Hey you guys, this morning we've got a special treat a dear friend of many, many years, a longtime elder here at the church, and just a great all round brother whom I love getting time with because he always stirs me up, makes me want to see more of Jesus. Y'all give it up for Dr. Yancey Smith. Good morning, and I'm glad to see everybody. Wow, good crowd. So... Um, we are in the third week of a, uh, a sermon series called Keep It Real, and um, today we're going to be talking about real identity. Uh, Jamie has been uh, preaching about 1 John, uh, and so the first week was real life, the second week was real experience, today we're talking about real identity, and uh, Pastor Jamie, uh, uh, drew us in to the message of 1 John by saying that the first part of the letter compared with the last verse in the letter, the last part, really helps us get into the theme, and that's true. It really does in a powerful way. The first part is talking about how the word of life that we have received in Jesus Christ, that John himself as an apostle heard, he also saw and his hands Handled so it's something uh, very practical and very concrete, not something ethereal or logical or out there. I mean, it's logical, but it's it's uh, it's uh, not something far away from where we live. It's something very practical that it was demonstrated in a human life and is demonstrated in our lives. And so, at the end of the uh, of the book, he also he says, uh, "Little children, uh, guard yourselves from idols." And that word "idol" in Greek, edolon, uh, also is referring to also refers to ghosts or phantasms or uh, things that are fantasy, and we don't serve a fantasy Christ. We don't serve a ghostly figure. He is a real. Uh, he is real and God in the flesh. And so, whatever we can say of any eternal importance about God. Love and the tremendous joy unleashed in the disciples of Jesus goes back to the shape of the life that Jesus lived. The imprint of His words, His personality, His prayers, the way He loved others and exhorted. Our message is based in that kind of courageous life that Jesus lived. The self-sacrificial way that He died and the amazing powerful way that He experienced resurrection from the dead. The whole point of the book of 1 John is to encourage us, the readers, and inspire confidence in the rock-solid nature of the love of God that is revealed in Jesus despite our own failures and sins. God is faithful, 1 John 1, 9 says, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from every kind of unrighteousness. Still, the faithfulness of God that we depend on does not leave us unchanged. Rather, it is a, it launches us on a journey of radical repentance. Christians in the Middle Ages were called repenters, and we'll see how appropriate that is for, uh, for our lives today. Uh, rather than believers, they called them repenters. Today we call them, we call us believers. Maybe we ought to re- rediscover that idea of repenters. God became flesh for us in Christ so that we would be transformed to be like Him. It is so easy to move away from the message of God becoming flesh for us to things that seem more vast or theoretical or abstract, but we need to resist that temptation. We especially in the West love logic, but it has a habit of running away on us. The gospel invites us to think slowly and carefully about our lives before God. So at the end of the letter, when John warns his readers uh, uh, to keep away from idols, he's warning us to keep away from phantoms or ghosts as well. Real identity is found in Jesus. In fact, what God does is, is invite us into the relationship. This is the gospel in a nutshell. We are invited to participate in the relationship that Jesus has with God. Now, just think about that for a second. We're invited to participate in that relationship. That relationship is a real thing. It's more real than you and I are. (laughs) And we're invited into that. And so our identity is all wrapped up in that relationship, father to son. And who we are can be described in terms of that relationship even though we in our lives can look at the evidence of our failures and say, ooh, it's not. I'm not yet there, or I'm on the way. But listen as we, as we go through this message today. You're going to be tempted to respond in various different ways. You're, we may have responses all over, and I don't know how you're going to respond. But at times you might think, ooh, that's not me, and it never will be. Be careful! That is the evil one talking to you. Let's practice a little bit of discernment as we as we go through the passage. If you if you respond, "Ooh, man, that's not me," and but I hope I hope that I will be that's the spirit of God. If you if you uh, are if you respond, "Wow, I know that has to be me," but there's just so much going on in my life, I'm re- I feel like I need to turn back to that message, then that's the Spirit of God. So listen to, so that you can discern to which spirit you're listening to as we go through this uh, passage today. So how we live, how we live expresses who we are. The word weather shouldn't be up there. Uh, who we are, our true identity, love for others that is righteousness, is the hallmark of our identity because those born of God have received the Father's love. There is a warning in this passage, and that passage is that however we may try to hide it from ourselves or others, the way we live eventually shows whether we are born of God or of the devil. And and 1 John uh, speaks in those stark terms, and so we want to uh, we want to zero in on what it means to be born of God as we as we listen. Those born of God cannot sin in the specific way that unbelievers do, but they nevertheless uh, they must nevertheless re, uh, live rightly as God defines it. Now. For the sake of this sermon, we're going to divide this chapter, chapter 3, into three parts, beginning with chapter 2, verse 28, through 10. Uh, that, uh, is the, that is the part of the message that, that asks the question, who are the children of God? It's encouraging and challenging. It's designed to make us feel uncomfortable and to do some soul searching and have an examination of our conscience. The second major section is chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, which is a pointed exhortation to love others like God loves us. That is, to live out of that identity in a real way toward others. Since we're God's children, it's expected that we'll be like Him so that our lives are characterized by love. If love doesn't characterize us, then there's a problem that needs to be addressed. The third uh, section circles back to the theme of confidence. First John 3:19 through 21 reminds us that children of God can be confident even if they are far from perfect. So let's read chapter 2 28 through 3 uh, 1. And now dear children continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of Him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Those who do righteousness have been born of God. That's what this uh, verse, verse 29 says. Uh, says very uh, pointedly, and, and what John is doing is drawing an inference from the assumption that all his readers would agree with, and I think we would too, and that is that Jesus Christ is the righteous one sent from the Father. Now, uh, Christ- that, that, uh, that idea is that, the, that God is righteous, God beyond all worlds is the one who is righteous and what he desires and what he uh, creates is also righteous, but he gives us this power within us to choose in our, in our relationship with him and uh, and so we find ourselves in of crossroads in our lives so many times. Now, what does it mean for God to be righteous? Some atheists in our day have raised the issue in this way, does God command a thing because it is good, or is it good because God commands it? That's an age-old question. And uh, Plato, even 300 years before Christ, was asking that question. In the minds of some people today, it seems like it's a supposedly unsolvable difficulty for belief of God in any kind. If it's the first case, then goodness would only be an arbitrary product of the divine will. While in the second case, the divine would be subordinate to some higher reality, and neither option would seem to be particularly attractive to people who want to believe in God. For Christians, though, this is a rather simple issue to solve. It's no more interesting than asking whether light shines because it's light, or whether instead it is light because it shines. When Plato asked this question, his whole point was to go beyond the gods of the Greeks that were just sort of overgrown, corrupt men and uh, women to something farther than that, a, a, a goodness that is beyond all worlds. or And, uh, and he was trying to uh, separate out the things that change down here in our world from the things that are unchanging, that create that sustain and support existence itself and bliss and consciousness and things like that. And so uh, for Christians, God is not like those Greek gods, of course. It's not some emotionally changeable entity who has to deliberate with his actions or deliberate inside of himself in some sort of uh, world of psychological impulses. God is the name instead, for Christians, of that eternal principle upon which the gods, if there were any gods, are dependent for their own existence and for their share in all the eternal perfections of being. For us, God is Himself the good or the form of the good. And His freedom consists in His limitless power to express His nature, His goodness, unhindered by the obstacles or limitations suffered by finite beings like ourselves. That's, that's God for Christians. So it's beyond all those. And a lot of the atheists that raise issues about God are not talking about this kind of gods. <laughs> They're talking about little gods. And so, phooey, I, you know, that just don't touch our God. So God's love is revealed in His children, in His child Jesus... And in his children. John was a Jew, and he knew the scriptures inside and out. He'd never really met this God, though, until he saw Jesus Christ. Then he knew that what he heard and his hands handled was that God. The stories about God, the poetry, the prophecies, the law, the wisdom of Israel's scripture had created a yearning for the God he met in Jesus Christ. But before meeting Jesus, That God was only a mystery to John. He knew that the God of Abraham and Isaac in the Old Testament was a covenant-making God. God established a relationship with His people by saving them from destruction and promised to preserve them and, and protect them until one day through them all the families of the earth would be blessed. In such a context, love is the motive for the covenant. And righteousness is the faithful keeping of promises. Those two concepts, righteousness and love in Hebrew, are expressed in one word, a Hebrew word, chesed. Say that with me, chesed. It sounds like you're going to spit, yeah. And it's God's faithful love that establishes covenant and fulfills the promises of covenant. The Scriptures through this story were a signpost and a preparation that pointed to Christ without being a perfect description of the God John met in Jesus Christ. They reveal necessary foundational truths without giving away the essential mystery. But Jesus presented Himself to His disciples as God's Son, which means that God is presented in Christ as Father. Father of everyone. Who fulf- and this Father fills His Son with the Holy Spirit. That picture of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was present only in mystery and in hope in the Scriptures, but it became reality in Jesus. In Jesus, we finally meet that God. As John said, no one has ever seen that God, but Jesus Christ, who is in the heart of the Father, has made Him known. He, Christ, is the love that moves the sun and the other stars. And the absolute nature of that love is reflected in the, now think about this, in the way we respond, listen to this, the unconditional quality of the transcendental and ecstatic desire that it excites in the hearts of all rational creatures. Everyone experiences that. This desire for something beyond all things, for something good, for something true, for something real, for something that uh, goes beyond everything that changes. As Bernard of Clairvaux said, love is sufficient in itself, gives joy and happiness through itself because of itself. It is its own merit, its own reward. Love looks to no cause outside itself, for uh, 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 no effect beyond itself. The God who is love says, I love because I love. I love so that I may love. Love is something great insofar as it returns constantly to its fountainhead and flows back to its source from which it ever draws the water that continually replenishes it. For when God loves His desire, is only to be loved in turn. His love's only purpose is to be loved as He knows that all who love Him are made happy by their love of Him. That is the God that John met in Jesus. Beyond every hope and dream where the greatest promises of the Scripture were distilled into reality and became flesh in Jesus, the earth-shattering news is that Christ invites us to be included in His relationship with God, to become children of God too. He opens up to us the amazing possibility of sharing in His nature by being born of God. Jesus shares His nature, His Spirit, His relationship with the Father with broken and weak people like you and me. And that is good news. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. The hope that we see in this is expressed in chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. The hope of complete transformation, becoming like Christ. Verse 2 says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God. Now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. The point is that God's children are a work in progress. Say that, I'm a work in progress. progress. (laughs) It's suggested by that emphatic word now. Now we are children of God. What we will be, it has to be revealed. Yes, we are children of God with all of our faults and our flaws. And that truth that we are children of God calls us to purify ourselves even as... He is pure. And he's already told us how that happens. In chapter 1, verse 9, uh, he said, If we, uh, no one can say that they don't sin or that they haven't sinned, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. So it's, we purify ourselves by getting on in on his process of how he purifies us. That is by coming into agreement with who he is, what our identity is in Christ, that we participate in that relationship, and confessing where we don't live up to that amazing reality, not by not being yet who we are. <laughs> and so uh, he calls us into that process of purification that really is something that he does. We can say, yeah, we purify ourselves, but really he's the one purifying us. It has to be, and this is something, the future of who we're going to be is going to be revealed, uh, uh, but let's go on to verse 3. So in verse 3, so those with this hope imitate Christ now, that is we purify ourselves. And notice we have this hope. It's the hope that moves us to purify ourselves. It's a hope that moves us to confess, and we confess by agreeing with God, agreeing with God both about our sin and about our true identity. And we're going to be seeing how uh, both uh, confessing our sin and confessing our true identity works hand in hand. Our true identity is in Jesus Christ is that we don't sin, because Jesus doesn't sin. If that's our identity, then we don't. But the the, the what we see in our lives <laughs> is that we do. What John is trying to tell us is that the reality is not what we do. The reality is what we will be. Amen. You see, that's the hope. That's the reality. We're stuck in time. God's not limited by time, and so He sees us as perfected beings. He loves us in Jesus. He's been. He's invited us into that relationship, and. And now you may, as you listen to these declarations in chapter 3, re- remember that I alerted you at the beginning to be listening to your response to them. Is that me? Is that not me? You know, Which one is real? Because the, the the big question here is what do you believe is real? Are your failures the reality? Or is where we're going going to be the reality? Is it the reality? Okay, so... Uh, when I say, for example, about hope, if I say, I hope it's going to rain soon because we really could use uh, uh, the moisture. But there is no meteorological p- possibility out there. I'm, my hope is merely a statement of wish. But in Greek, that's not hope. The Greek word hope is a firm conviction of something expected to happen. There's no uh, doubt about it at all. I may say uh, it, it's, a, it's a little stronger idea if I say, in English, if I say I hope to be able to uh, enjoy a good retirement, that's why I am putting money in my 401k. Well, uh, it's true that uh, I'm doing something that's stronger, I'm doing something about that, And uh, but there's some doubt kind of uh, brought into that whole idea because, you know, there's a lot of fluctuations in the market. So, Uh, that hope may not be as secure as I'd like it to be. But the security that we have in Jesus Christ is completely different. (laughs) God has already shown us from the beginning what we will be like, you see. God has shown us in Jesus Christ what our destination is. What does it mean to be predestined? It means to know what your destination is. It's Jesus being like Jesus. Okay, so, um, wow, thank you, Lord. So everyone, who, who, everyone who, who sins breaks the law, and in fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, I, I want to, uh, to focus in on this uh, idea of sin as lawlessness or sin as anomia. Say that with me, anomia. The, word, the Greek word anomia, it's composed of two different pieces. Uh, one is a, which means un, or uh, uh, something like that. It's an, uh, uh, we, call it, we call it an alpha privative, which means it takes away with whatever, from whatever comes next. And nomos, which is the word from, for law. And it's not saying that sin, it, it would be a banal statement to say that sin is breaking a law. That's not the idea here that he's talking about rather uh uh he is starting to talk to his audience and members of his audience and this happens in christian churches it may it, you you may see yourself reflected in this i hope not but he turns to those of us who do not live as if they wish to become like jesus he is G, john is exposing the true nature of that kind of behavior. Any, anytime some, such a person sins, he or she acts in a way that conforms to a kind of identity that is opposed to Jesus. In the background, John is already thinking about Cain and Abel, he, who he's going to talk about Cain in just a little bit. In Genesis 4, both Cain and Abel approached God "...with worship and sacrifices, but God rejected Cain and his offering while he accepted Abel. Cain was angry. God spoke to him tenderly, warning him of how close he was to either good or evil. And he asked him, "'Why are you so angry and depressed? If you do well, you are accepted.'" if not, sin is a demon crouching at the door. This is Genesis 4, 7. It shall be eager for you and you will be mastered by it. And it's interesting, that last phrase in Hebrew is, it can be translated either you will be mastered by it or it will be mastered by you. Either one. And so uh, God in in calling him and stating this word actually is is giving him a what what would be translated a law that is a teaching and that's what the word law means in Hebrew it means teaching not just some legal framework but it is something that is uh, a a curriculum for life for changing people's behavior and for living by uh, and so it will uh, when he said it shall be eager for you sin will be eager for you but and you will be mastered by it or it will be mastered by you. Either one is, is possible. And so, of course, Cain rose up and killed his brother and that injustice echoes through time and in every culture and in all the twisted failure of sin. And here in first John, the author reveals the true nature of sin, not as individual, unrelated, random acts, but as originating from an attitude that resents God's moral demands on our lives. An attitude that John refers to as lawlessness or anomia. Cain's heart was lawless. The word that, like I said, uh, is, is formed from those Greek words. Anomia or lawlessness is the stubborn refusal to be taught, to refuse to be informed and formed and transformed in fellowship with God. When John says that sin is anomia, he is saying more than that every sin is in some sense an infraction of Mosaic law the word anomia is used more than 200 times in the Greek version of the Old Testament in a passage in which the Lord describes the penalty for covenant disobedience. in Leviticus 26.43. And I'm translating here from the Greek version, not the Hebrew. It says, "...they themselves shall accept their lawlessness, their anomia, on account of which they disdained My judgments and were vexed in their souls by My ordinances. To be lawless does not simply mean to break the law. It means to disdain the very idea of God teaching us how we must live. Many atheists have this root problem of rejecting the existence of God because their hearts are lawless and they reject the thought of a being to whom they must submit. Anomia is the rejection of God's loving authority and the exaltation of the autonomy of self. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you who practice anomia, lawlessness. It's striking that John uses similar language here in verse 4 in 1 John 3, pointing out that whoever sins is really doing anomia. His point is to shock us into seeing the true nature of what we may think as individual unrelated acts. Such acts arise from a heart of lawlessness. The word anomia always refers to those who have resolutely turned away from God to the point that they can no longer be regarded as His people, but are now, in fact, His enemies. How shocking it is to see the true nature of sin, that it is the the same nature as the antichrists, the world, and darkness. It's the choice to stand against God with the devil and all of his violence and all of his hatred, rather than with confidence relying on Jesus it is, to deliberately, uh, 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 it is to deliberately stand against God. And so what this text is calling us to do is to vigorously reject sin. All right? We've got to get to this point where we, we look at sin, we look at it in our lives, and we have to get this vigorous rejection of this thing. That's what we have to have. That is repentance in part. The second part of repentance is what we turn toward, which is life and love and hope and the amazing gifts that God has given us. So sin is a, is a problem because it frustrates God's the purpose of sending uh, uh, Jesus to earth. Christ appeared, verse 5 says, so th- as you know, to do away with sin, and in Him there is no sin. That's His identity. John presses that point, that sin has no place in the believer's life, for Jesus came into the world for the very purpose of taking away our sin. How can anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus and who is becoming like him find any rationalization for sin? You know, this is one of those sermons where, uh, you know, it's starting to get a little, little bit heavy. I, I know. <laughs> But, but we've got to go there. It's, it's important from time to time that we really look, stop and look at the Word and think about the, the consequences of not following in humble, loving obedience to God. The statement that there is no sin in Jesus Christ says more than that Jesus never committed a sin during His life. It says that you or I, remember our identity is in Jesus That you or I cannot remain in him and sin, for there is no sin in Jesus. John is building a case against the person who wishes to be known as a Christian and yet defends practices and attitudes that are contrary to God's righteousness, his loving nature. Sin is a rebellion against God who teaches us to be faithful and trustworthy toward Him and one another. To do such a thing of this nature is to be lawless and reject the goodness of God in His loving authority for us. So it's a serious thing. It's a big deal, as Jamie likes to say. It's a big deal. So verse, six, verse 6a, verse No person, therefore, who dwells in Him is a sinner. Or other translations say, No one who is in him, who dwells in him, abides in him, sins. John now defines more explicitly what remaining in God means. It means refraining from sin. When we have seen Christ, that is when the glorious light of God's love has illuminated us in the face of Jesus Christ, and we begin to know Christ, we also know God. The one who has not seen him is still blind and in the dark. Even those who think they see and know God have not truly seen <laughs> have not truly seen and know him if they continue to be at home and comfortable with sin in their lives. They lack the vision and the knowledge of Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. Now, the, the, the second part of chapter, of chapter 3, verse 6, is a difficult verse. And uh, one of the reasons why I spent hours and hours and hours on this whole on this sermon this, uh, this week. Uh, I'm not going to go into that. That's just too much. Okay. So, so the, the NIV represents the common, we, and, and this is what we typically read from. It's, it's, it's a good version. I, I love it. Use it all the time. So don't take this as a, a, criti- a criticism. Uh, the represent, the NIV represents a common way of reading, translating, do not sin, uh, as no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. However, the present tense, that is the same form, the same uh, type of verb is found in chapter 5, verse 16, where it says that the NIV translates as, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin. So 516 and 36 are the same, uh, present continuous, uh, verb form verb type. So uh, there the, the same verbal aspect refers to individual acts of sin rather than habitual sin, and that just complicates the picture for us who are trying to make something um, seem uh, more uh, consistent in Greek. Uh, just file that for useless information. Uh, so what does verse 6 really mean? Sometimes Scripture, and, and here's, here's my here's what I settle on after all kinds of working over it in different ways. Sometimes Scripture uses a direct declaration of fact as an exhortation. And, and, and if, if our identity, true identity is Jesus, and that's our true, true, true identity, and the failures that we experience in our lives on a daily basis are not our true identity, then uh, we should expect Scripture to address our true identity from time to time, though. No. Isn't that right? So uh, so this happens in family, too. We, we see this at home. Uh, for example, a child comes home from school with a note saying that the child has been playing hooky. Do, 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 do they use that word today? You know, <laughs> hooky, you know, was not in class. And the mom says, members of this family do not play hooky. Now, there is a de- de- declarative statement of identity, right? But the child is kind of like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think I get your point, mom, right? So uh, we don't have to get tied up in knots over the verbs there. It's pretty simple what the meaning is. The indicative, that is that declarative statement, is a powerful imperative. Son, no more playing hooky, Right? So we can receive this indicative not as a philosophical problem to be worked out, but as a command to respond to, right? A teaching to respond to. So uh, in the Old Testament, for example, in 2 Samuel 13, 12, Amnon, David's wicked son, asked his half-sister to have sex with him, and then when she resisted, he raped her. She said, as she was resisting, she said, No, my brother, do not force me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do anything so vile. The strong statement, such a thing is not done in Israel, is equivalent to an imperative. Don't do this in Israel, right? So uh, so the statement, if someone remains in Him, they do not sin, or they are not a sinner, means sinning is mutually exclusive with remaining in Christ. They don't belong together. This doesn't mean that a Christian who sins hops in and out of Christ if they do sin. Rather, when we are tempted to sin, Christians face a decision whether we wish to live in Christ, recognizing that there is no way to justify sin as compatible with life in Christ. I'm sure that the original readers began to feel the same discomfort that we do when we read this verse. (laughs) Since sin is in fact a present reality in every life, even in the lives of those who are followers of Christ, how can anyone remain in Him? Well, there is a distinct tension in chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. And that tension begins here and comes to its fullest force with John's statement in 3, verse 9. Just look down. In 3, verse 9 where he says those who are born of God will not continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. So sinning is uh, something that doesn't con- conform to the identity of Jesus Christ that is ours. And so what do we do with this? Well, we take this declaration on board as expressing our real identity. Jesus cannot sin. I'm in Jesus. His identity is my identity. So I, speaking I as Christ in me, can't sin. Now that does not mean that if you sin, if you do sin, that uh, you can get away with that. It means that you are being called to purify yourself by confessing, agreeing with God about that sin because as you confess, you become forgiven and God is purifying you of all unrighteousness and you are moving toward that identity that you're confessing. You see, you're purifying yourself because God is purifying you of all unrighteousness. The question is, And we're only going to be able to get down to verse 10. We won't be able to finish it. Um, Or actually, we might just stop pretty soon here because we we don't have a lot of time and I have so much more than I can say. This could be three sermons. Thank you, Jamie. (laughs) So, you know, the call in uh, chapter uh, 3, verses 11 through uh, 16 is. uh, uh, Eighteen is is to love one another, because that is the definition of righteousness, and sin is opposed to love. Sin is the opposite of love, and so and and he calls us to love in a concrete way. That when we see people in need, we don't close our hearts, but we open them and we respond to that need. That uh, we 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 can't say we love God and not love our brother who we do see that's in need. And then at the, toward the end of the chapter, he says, now, if our hearts condemn us, which means he, he expects that people that listen to this text and read it are going to be experiencing a call to the examine of conscience, right? I don't know how many people are feeling the examine of conscience right now. Okay. I'm feeling the examine of conscience and I'm preaching this message. And so uh, it's, it's a call to respond to the, what the Holy Spirit is doing in me. The Holy Spirit is telling me, Yancey, you've been a believer for many years. You've heard a lot of sermons. You've lived a lot of life. And still, there are flaws and there are things that you do that reveal that there is still a problem in your heart and you need to repent, you need to confess. It just doesn't get beyond the basics of purifying ourselves. Now, I do believe that when we die and we're in the presence of Jesus, our real identity will engulf this fake identity that we have in ourselves, that it's so evil and so wicked. But as I'm, as I'm repenting, what I'm repenting of is not so much individual failures and failings, that's easy to say. Yeah, I failed, I've, I, I made a mistake. No, I'm repenting of something deeper. We have to get to the place where we are repenting of anomia, which is the lawless kind of rejection of God's loving authority that Cain himself rejected when he did, didn't hear God's loving kindness and responded with that murderous impulse. Sin, sinning then means truly not knowing God. But the person that freely confesses sin and brings it out into the open receives that purification. Now, here's here's the here's the important thing to recognize we're not talking today in a way that is so condemning of sin so that you sin will go underground you see that's that that would be a total failure if this message made you feel like wow i i just don't measure up so um so i'm just going to go underground with my sin no no if if we're preaching it right and if we are hearing it right we hear you hear the the amazing grace of God that you have been included in Jesus Christ as you are. And that your identity is in Him. And that there's grace, as as Jamie says so often, there is grace. We're standing in grace. And grace is abundant. And God's love is amazing. And you're feeling shocked about, yeah, oh, sin in my life. The response then is not to go underground with it. The response is to say, well, out with it. Out with it. Out with it because I hate it. Out with it because it hates me. Out with it because the only way to be pure is to confess, which means to agree with God about what's wrong in my heart. And so the call of even a difficult word like this, even a a word that that compares our present state with our, our real state in Jesus Christ, is to liberate us from sin, to set us free, to freely admit, yes, this is me, yes, this is why I did that, yes, I own it, yes, let me make it up, yes, let me, uh, let me experience forgiveness. I'll tell you, I, I have been that person many times. And the only way to overcome, the only way to overcome is to spill the beans. <laughs> the only way to get the cat out of the bag is to let the cat out of the bag. And suffering the consequences, which are loving consequences, of, of expressing freely what I am guilty of, the only, the only consequence really is to be forgiven and encouraged and supported and purified and made whole and healed, accepted. Isn't it wow. Great. Uh, if that's the consequences, let me have it. And we as believers, what we have to do is to be that community filled with the Holy Spirit that respond in the same way that God responds to our own, our own sin. So that's the message today. We could, there's, there's much more in this chapter we could cover, but I want to land the plane here. Did you experience, did you think, think back now as you heard the word did you did you experience, well, wow, that's not me, and I'm never going to be like Jesus. Did you experience that? If you did, I want to encourage you to reject that. It's not true. Who you are in Jesus is more real than the atoms and the molecules and the DNA that form who you are. That's the real you. And that's where God will finish with you. And if you're saying, wow, yeah, I I recognize God that I I remain in you. I'm confessing and I, I admit that there's sin in my life. Well, you know, that's where all the rest of us are. That's where all the rest of us are. We know that the truth is that that we're united to Jesus and His sinlessness and perfection is communicated to us no matter how much we've failed in our lives. And I would just say, join the Sinners Anonymous Club. You know? But when you do that, you're not a sinner, you see? When you do that, you're no longer a sinner because your identity is in Jesus Christ. Wow. Now hang on to that. Think about it. Believe it. Confess it. Stand up. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness. We thank you for your love. We thank you that the truest identity of who we are is found only in Jesus Christ. That all of our weaknesses and failings, Lord, that you are stronger than our hearts. If our hearts condemn us, you are stronger than our hearts, which means, Father, you will overcome all of those obstacles, all of those twisted knots, all of those things that have happened to us to create the conditions that are part of who we are now that you're changing. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would fill us with confidence that in You, despite our worst failings, we have the hope of being like Jesus. And that as we confess, as we agree with You, as we confess the truth about sin and about who we really are, You're about transforming us into the likeness of Jesus in community with brothers and sisters and before the world, Father. Thank You, Jesus. Now, if you... uh, if you feel like, man, it's time to get right with God. It's time to get that out. This may be your moment. If you're feeling like, uh, hey, you know, I really feel convicted, but, you know, I know this is my identity in Christ. Then receive prayer because you want that identity to be even strengthened more. Whatever the need is, you know, if if you heard this and at first you were rejecting the idea of identity in Jesus, then it's time to reject the rejection. Get prayer. So Father, we thank You. In the name of Jesus, we thank You.